This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 22nd, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump laid out his Afghanistan plan yesterday. It was succinct and it was kick ass. We are not nation building again. We are killing terrorists. This did mark, historians later noted, the presidential pronouncement that came closest to a line of dialogue said by Rowdy Roddy Piper in a John Carpenter movie. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Rowdy Roddy, at least, like Trump, a former WWE personality, Rowdy Roddy did back up both his plan to kick some ass as well has demonstrated a paucity of bubblegum. Trump, on the other hand, contradicted that vow that he wasn't going to build nations in another part of the speech. Military power alone will not bring peace to Afghanistan or stop the terrorist threat arising in that country. But strategically applied force aims to create the conditions for a political process to achieve a lasting peace. America will work with the Afghan government, as long as we see determination and progress. Now, I could decry Trump's self-contradictions, either within the speech or from those bold pronouncements on the campaign trail that he'd get the hell out of Afghanistan. But you know what? He wound up making the right choice. The plan might not work. Afghanistan might be unwinnable from a United States perspective. But he took the best advice from the most learned people, and he committed to a small increase. And that's the best thing I think he could have done. And changing his mind from a bad policy to a better policy, that's good. That's a good thing. So let's not always maintain that the president can do no right, that the president is only a hypocrite. Let's say the president corrected a bad policy with a better one. Now, will it be one that pays dividends, especially dividends that Americans will see that will improve their lives, that will make them want to vote for Trump again if it comes to that? Probably not. And actually, what he decided just might be a disaster, or had he decided the exact opposite thing, that might be a disaster also. This, like I said, might be unwinnable. But at least Trump put aside a bit of his pig-headedness and subbed in a lot of bluster. But if that's how you've got to convince Trump to make a less wrong decision, then do it. Say, yes, Mr. President, you could put that line about killing terrorists right there in the middle of your speech. 
And what a preposterous line it is. I'm not here to fumigate. I'm just here to stomp out bugs with my foot, right? I don't want to do the big work. I just want to keep doing the little work that is a consequence of me inadequately doing the big work. I'm not here to build a house. I'm just here to punch all the coyotes who descend upon us because we're not inside. So manly, so very manly. I'm not going to clear vegetation or dry piles of wood from my driveway during forest fire season. I'm just going to piss on all the fires that pop up with my, and I think this is pretty clear by implication, with my massive penis. Fantastic. You know what? If that's the tough talk that you need to commit to in order to get to the right strategy, then you take it, Mr. President. We're all impressed with your fire prevention flow and accuracy. On the show today, I spiel about the wife of the Treasury Secretary, who is herself quite a treasure. But first, Brian Fogel's goal was to take a lot of performance-enhancing drugs, win a bike race, and then make a movie about it. Instead, he wound up stumbling into the epicenter of state-sponsored doping. Icarus is his film about blowing the whistle on a massive Russian conspiracy to cheat at the Olympics and fool the world. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When documentarian, actually aspiring documentarian, Brian Fogel, a cycling enthusiast, started looking around at the effects of uh, steroids and performance-enhancing drugs on Lance Armstrong and other cyclists, he started wondering for himself, well, would this help me? And then he went all Morgan Spurlack and said, I'm going to inject myself. I'm going to see what effect it has on my race times. To do this, he consulted with a very interesting and learned doctor, Grigory Rodchenkov, a Russian scientist, and actually it was working. His times were improving. And there the story turns. This is the subject of the new Netflix documentary, Icarus, and Brian Fogel is here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So the idea was you were way into cycling and you were saying to yourself, all right, what if I uh, pump myself up with some of these drugs that helps Armstrong and the others? So I was looking at Lance Armstrong and this guy to this day has passed 500 anti-doping controls clean. He's never been caught. The only way he was actually caught is his own teammates who did the same thing as him, ratted him out in exchange for their own immunity. Right. But what is wrong with this system that has been completely ineffective in catching him? Why are the dopers ahead of the doping police? That, and I'm going, wait, if Armstrong had been able to accomplish this, Mm -hmm. what does this mean on a global level? And what I ended up uncovering was a conspiracy so vast that it makes what Lance Armstrong did look like essentially a needle in a haystack and points to such a larger level of corruption within the sporting world and the Olympic organization. But your way in was this doctor, Grigory Rodchenkov. I was almost a professional in running. 
1,500 meters and 5 kilometers in Moscow University. My mother always pushed me to swim, to ski. I realized that some people are using something. Last year he was nobody, next year he has a muscles. And of course, I also started to use the best of the best. Stanozolol. And all injections were done by my mother. And of course, it was 50 milligrams. This simple thing. Wait, wait. Your mother injected you? Yes, of course. I graduated to Moscow University to the chemical department. I like doping control. I like sports. And since 1985, I worked in the top field of laboratories in the world. But did you choose him because he would uh, help you in your aim of doing this experiment on yourself? Or did you... Choose him because you thought that maybe he was the key to the door of the bigger question. Well, it, it, it was both. This was, hey, I have a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And the hypothesis in a sentence would be? The anti-doping system flat out did not work. Right. I start speaking to scientists after scientists after scientist. Does the anti-doping system work? And every single one of them even including the ones that are deeply involved in the system, are telling me no. That was what led me to Don Catlin, who uh, was retired but developed most of the anti-doping protocols in sport. And he was telling me that there were so many problems. And I say to Don, hey, would you help me prove this hypothesis? And he goes, look, I'd love to, but I'm just concerned about my reputation. And he connects me to Dr. Gregory Rachenkov, who at the time is running the third largest WADA, World Anti-Doping Laboratory in the world. He agrees to essentially help me dope myself. But the goal behind that is to show on camera how it is not only possible to evade positive detection, but also kind of the deeper level of corruption uh, within the anti-doping world. So Don Catlin says, I sympathize with what you're trying to prove, but I'm essentially the doping police. I'm not going to dope you. Dr. Rodchenkov says something different. Does that, that interesting to you? Does that raise either alarm bells or tell you something about him? When you look at just the, the outside of it, of whether or not Gregory should have been helping me, mm-hmm. well, the answer is no, because it is against all code work to advise an athlete, amateur or not, even though I'm an amateur athlete, what to do. And the fact that he agrees to do that is because in the back of his mind, he had a bigger story to tell. He had just come out of the Sochi Winter Games. He had been involved in a spectacular fraud and he had had enough. And you had to back up here for 10 seconds. So, in the U.S. or the U.K. or or many countries, sport is privatized. You essentially have to get a private sponsor. It's privately funded. And even if you make it onto the Olympic team, America is not paying for you to right. compete. You are not an employee of the government. Right. Well, in Russia, all of sport, professional sport, is under the ministry, meaning sport is a government operation. In Russia, in China, an American athlete once told me that American Olympians are sent to the Olympics by Americans, citizens who 
band together, who fund their federations, who fund them. But in Russia or China or one of these other countries, they're sent there by Russia, by China. That is right. And they are competing for their country. Yep. They are being supported by the country and they are being paid by the country to compete. And layer on to that, when you're hosting the Olympics, as Putin in Russia was in 2014, it is all about spending $50 billion, all about the glory of the country, so much of his own prestige, national prestige, wrapped up in pulling off a successful Olympics and Russian athletes doing well in those Olympics. That's right. The mandate was to win at all cost. Why? Because if you're going to spend $50 billion to host your own Winter Olympic Games, your athletes better win and you better win as a country. So give me the numbers on the extent of the cheating in Russia that we know of. Well, Professor Richard McLaren, with the help of Interpol, other police agencies, forensic scientists, examiners, determined that at least 1,000 Russian athletes across all sport were involved in this conspiracy to cheat the Olympics, but also cheat international competition, that the conspiracy went back to at least 2008. And what he determined was that this was a state-sponsored system and that Russia was helping these athletes evade positive detection through its laboratory system and that essentially this has corrupted the last 40 years of Olympic history. Essentially, how many hundreds and thousands of American athletes, not to mention world athletes, have been cheated out of medals, assuming that those athletes were clean? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Because Marion Jones, Tyson Gay, many American athletes themselves have doped. Right. Yeah. So the mechanics of this are fascinating. In the uh, Chinese games... The Chinese officials conspired with the athletes to make sure that the urine going in the vials was clean. These doped up athletes would come in and they'd pour clean urine in the vials and the vials would be tested. No problem. In Sochi, the dirty urine, the athlete's urine would go in the vials. But what Radchenkov and his minions figured out was a way to essentially steal the dirty urine crack open this supposedly foolproof, uncrackable vial and replace it with clean urine. My question is, why does it take a doping scientist to do this? It sounds more like a feat of engineering. Well, that's exactly right. So when you look at kind of like the the history of the cat and mouse game in the world of anti-doping, right? Most of it has been a science equation, meaning what Rachenkov was doing was developing tests to catch other athletes, while at the same time he's developing the the anti-venom to his test to allow Russian athletes to get away with taking substances while catching other athletes. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a science equation. But when you look at what they did in Sochi, this is just outright fraud. And so what Rachenkov's job went from is being a scientist to essentially being, as he says, their doggy bag, their their shit collector, that he was there to clean up the mess. And this was essentially Russia's solution to anti-doping, which was screw the science. If we can actually just manipulate the system itself and break into the bottles, we can just have all of our athletes dope and then we just swap out their urine. Yeah, and dope with the strongest stuff possible and dope up until the last minute. I mean, you always hear- Dope dope straight through the competition. Yeah, yeah, dope in between rounds. So one of the- I don't know if it's problems, but 
it does raise in my mind, why did he make such an ethical distinction between doping and maybe using a masking agent with the drugs so that you test the drugs and it wouldn't show up? That seems very similar to what actually went on, which is just, you know, pouring out the dirty urine and putting in clean urine. To him, there was a big difference. Why? Because it offended his sensibilities? First of all, it is impossible to condone uh, what Dr. Rachenkov was a part of. But I think you can also understand that he was an employee of a government. A brutal and vicious government. And he said to the ministry, this system has reached its logical conclusion. And out of Sochi, he was promised that they were going to no longer swap the urine, that they were going to go back to kind of the old methodology of evading positive detection as to what right. they were doing, and they were no longer going to swap the urine. But out of Sochi, they kept swapping the urine. Yeah. I want to ask you about Dr. Rachenkov's motivations. The walls were closing in on him, yet it does seem, through your documentary, here's, he's a guy with at least a great personality. He's, he seems to be a compelling figure. To what extent was doing the right thing or pangs of conscience driving him? And to what extent was just rationally figuring out that coming to you and blowing the whistle and now living in the United States was his only way to avoid, you know, maybe getting killed by the Russians? What was really driving him? In November 2015, this 335-page report comes out that WADA was investigating. And the report is limited only to track and field. And it's such a bombshell. Gregory is forced to resign from the lab. The laboratory is shut down. And the IAAF, International Track and Field Athletics, Sebastian Co., suspends Russia from all world competition. So this is now a crisis in Russia. And they have to respond. And their response is to deny all responsibility. But not only that, Putin gets on state television and says that if there has been any doping in Russia, it is the individuals that are responsible. And it is the individuals who will be held accountable and punishment will be absolute. And that was essentially Gregory's death sentence. Yeah. That was it right there. And Gregory is on a phone call to me, Skyping. He's now without a job. He has two KGB FSB agents living in his apartment. It's five days after this report. And Gregory is telling me, Brian, you have to help me. I need to escape. They're going to kill me. They are planning my suicide. And I need to escape. I, I buy him a plane ticket. He had a visa already to come to the U.S. And he's able to slip out. And as he comes to the United States, he brings this hard drive with him of all the documents, of all the evidence. Not only does he tell me the extent to which he has been involved, he also decides that he wants to become a whistleblower and that people need to know about this. And I think it was driving from multiple things. One, he knew that he was a dead man if he stayed in Russia. Two, after the Sochi Olympics, Vladimir Putin gives him the Medal of Friendship, basically the highest honor in Russia yeah. for his success of Sochi. Rex okay? Tillerson got it too. Right? Yeah. Putin's ratings are at like 95% approval rating. And he goes 
and attacks Ukraine. It goes into into Crimea. Yeah. And and wages war in which thousands of people die. And in Gregory's mind, the only reason why he was able to do this was because of the success that he had had at Sochi and the national pride that was involved in that. And you have to remember, nobody knew about this. It Mm -hmm. was like there were only a few people that truly had the knowledge. So even though the athlete hypothetically was providing his clean urine and taking substances, they didn't know they were breaking into the bottles. They didn't have, you know, it was. That's how you run an effective operation like this. Exactly. You have cells and you have cutouts and the one person doesn't know what the next is doing. But there are one or two people like your guy, Rochenkov, who does And here's Rochenkov and the other two people that had knowledge of this. Both die of heart attacks within two weeks of each other. One's 52, one's 59. The 52-year-old is essentially Gregory's best friend. He's an athlete. He's never had a health problem in his life. He's never been to the doctor. He's never had a heart problem. Nikita Kamaya, this guy who dies, had contacted David Walsh, probably the most respected journalist in sports, yeah. the Sunday Times writer. Yeah, and was all reached, over was all over the Lance Armstrong right. story. And he reached Armstrong out to David yelled Walsh. yelled at him a lot, yeah. And he reached out to David Walsh and said, hey, I have a story for you. And two days later, he's dead. Yeah. Gregory finally said, you know, I am the only man on planet Earth that can tell this story, and enough is enough. So, in evaluating... What he's done, certainly the information he provided is a great boon to public knowledge. Perhaps it'll lead to reforms. You suggest that reform might be nigh impossible of very factual, detailed information, brave in a way if desperate, but brave. But there's another argument here. Perhaps his misdeeds while he was in place were so severe that nothing he's done since can make up for them. It's not necessarily a question that you have to weigh in on, but I wonder if you've grappled with it. First of all, you can't condone what Gregory did and what he was involved in. But then he could have come to the United States and he could have kept his mouth shut. He could have likely gotten political asylum or worked out something. You know, there were all sorts of things that he could have done that likely would have allowed him to remain alive. Instead, this guy takes this extraordinary leap. Not only has he left his family, where he will never be able to go back to Russia again, and now he is living in protective custody where he no longer has his own freedom. He had 10 million things to lose and really not a lot to gain in doing this other than his own clearing of his conscience. I I can't see any other outcome for him other than to be respected in his bravery and his integrity to shine a light into this. Brian Fogel is the director. Icarus is the film. It is available now on Netflix. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Are you familiar with the work of Louise Linton? Perhaps you recognize her as skincare consultant in the film Lions for Lambs, or as Corey's mother in the Christopher Walken movie The Power of Few, 
or as the wife of Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, or, oh, this was a good role, Officer Winston in the 2016 remake of Cabin Fever. Hmm. Lady friend, huh? I'll bet you like to party. I'll bet you like to party with the ladies. Now that is one creepy line read. It's hard to imagine that the 2016 version of Cabin Fever only got a 0% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Although as First Lady of the Treasury, a position held by Eliza Schuyler Hamilton and more recently Carol Sonnenfeld Geithner, Louise Linton's rating isn't much better. First Lady of the Treasury, or the money honey, as it's been called since the beginning of that last sentence, is normally a low-profile affair. But Louise Linton seems to like the attention. Yeah, 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 the actress thing. But she also penned a memoir of her gap year in Africa, which was widely decried as false, pretentious, and just the epitome of white saviorhood. So yesterday, Linton posted on social media a picture of her exiting a plane marked United States of America. It was a taxpayer-funded trip. She was discussing tax reform with Mitch McConnell in Kentucky and visiting Fort Knox. Linton wore designer clothes. No problem. She's glamorous. She hashtagged all her designers. Hashtag Hermes scarf. Hashtag Valentino rock stud heels as she walked on the tarmac in Kentucky. And she wrote, great hashtag day trip to hashtag Kentucky. Hashtag nicest. Hashtag people. Hashtag beautiful. Hashtag countryside. Hashtag USA. One Instagram user took a firm stance about what she did, the profligate use of hashtags. No, actually, it was more like umbrage at this enormously wealthy woman. Her husband is worth up to half a billion dollars, according to disclosures. The very fancy model and actress who literally grew up in a castle. All right, it was a Scottish castle, so it was probably really drafty, but it was a castle. She went to Kentucky on the public dime, and now she's flouncing about like she's at a Hollywood premiere, which is what they give to movies that don't go straight to video, unlike much of Ms. Linton's oeuvre. The Instagram user, Jenny Miller, wrote, Glad we could pay for your little getaway. Hashtag deplorable. Ooh, I like that deplorable usage. Slick. Hashtag burn. And that, that statement got the ninth built cast member of the Midnight Man to pounce. Here's what she wrote on Instagram. Adorable. Do you think the U.S. government paid for our honeymoon or personal travel? L-O-L-O-L-O-L. Have you given more to the economy than me and my husband, either as an individual earner in taxes or in self-sacrifice to your country? I'm pretty sure we paid more taxes toward our day trip than you did. Pretty sure the amount we sacrifice per year is a lot more than you'd be willing to sacrifice if the choice was yours. Linton added... You're adorably out of touch. Thanks for the passive-aggressive nasty comment. And then in a fit of ultimate self-awareness, she wrote, Your kids look very cute. Your life looks cute. It should be noted that Linton's definition of sacrifices, which is, we make a lot of money, so we pay more in taxes, that will be less true if her husband gets through his tax plan. Estimates are that the Mnuchin tax plan will save Mnuchin and Linton eh, several million dollars. Although maybe by sacrifice, what Louise Linton was referring to was that her association with Trump is killing her standing in refined society. Anyway, Linton took her Instagram page private and eventually issued this apology. Quote, 
I am genuinely dismayed and very sorry to see that I have offended people as this was the very opposite of my intent. No, wait, I'm sorry. That was the apology for her self-published memoir in Congo Shadow, One Girl's Perilous Journey to the Heart of Africa. The apology for in hashtag Louboutin's shadow, one hashtag Louis Vuitton wearing heroines jaunts into the smelly pits of coal country went like this. I apologize for my post on social media yesterday, as well as my response. It was inappropriate and highly insensitive. Linton said in a statement from her publicist, as Eliza Schuyler Hamilton said, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Apparently, it's Louise Linton's publicist. I wonder if Ruth Schwartz had a publicist. She's Jack Lou's wife. Jack Lou, Treasury Secretary. Yeah, Normally, this fiduciary couple are just normal people who don't brag about their opulence while visiting the state ranked 46th in median per capita income. One last definition, hashtag cacistocracy, cacistocracy, a system of government which is run by the worst, least qualified or most unscrupulous citizens. And that's it for today's show. Dan Schrader produced the gist today. Hashtag plaid shirt and shorts. Mary Wilson is the gist producer. She will be back tomorrow, not to build a nation, but to kill terrorists. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Oh, you think podcasts are a legitimate form of audio? How adorable. The gist. Photos of me riding taxpayer-funded forms of transport have also been taken off the internet. But that is because the pants of the guy behind me on the F train have fallen around his ankles. Hashtag underoos. Oomperu, depru, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>